2020 is a special anniversary year for Queen's University. It's 175 years since the establishment of the Queen's Colleges in Belfast, Cork and Galway and the beginning of our history as a university. In this anniversary podcast series, we will reflect on our journey and hear about some of the Queen's people who have made a difference across the world over the past 175 years. In this episode, Professor Roy Spence from the School of Medicine, Dentistry and Biomedical Sciences shares the stories of those who have made an impact on the world of medicine. In 1845, as the potato famine began in Ireland, Queen Victoria was in the eighth year of her 64-year reign and the Queen's Colleges of Belfast, Cork and Galway were incorporated. Four years later, when the Belfast College opened, there were five members in the Faculty of Medicine, with a total of 55 students. Now there are 560 faculty members teaching 2,000 students. So in our 175th year, let's take a journey back for a few minutes of snapshots of some outstanding medical people and their times. When I think about the history of Queen's, I think about the Whitla Hall. I think about the untold thousands of students who have trooped through its doors since they were first opened in 1949. I was one of those students almost 50 years ago, going to graduation ceremonies, exams, conferences, and the list goes on. But how many of us ever pause for a moment to wonder about the man who gave the Whitlow Hall its name? William Whitlow was a boy from County Monaghan who entered Queen's as a student in 1870. He would go on to become one of the most important figures of any era in medicine in this part of the world. He graduated MB with first class honours in 1877. He was appointed Professor of Materia Medica in 1890, a post he held for 29 years. He was knighted in 1902. He also built an international reputation through the publication of several important medical textbooks. They were printed in many languages and earned him a lot of money. That plus the income from his practice and other sources made him very wealthy indeed. All of this would be to his university's benefit. Whitlow was a generous man who appreciated the opportunities Queen's had given him and he wanted to help pave the way for students and staff who would follow. Among much else, he part-designed and paid for the Whitlam Medical Institute and endowed the Chair of Pharmacology. In his will, he even bequeathed his own home to the university as a residence for future Vice-Chancellors. And on top of that, he left a large sum to construct the Whitlow Hall. The history of medical education at Queen's is the story of men and women like Whitlow, each in their own way dedicated to the lives of others and to the advancement of medical science. There have been legendary figures, people like Sir John Henry Biggert, whose influence over everything that happened in Northern Ireland medicine, both undergraduate and postgraduate, was absolute and total. He was Dean of Medicine for a quarter of a century. He would tell his students, Don't come to me when the trouble is broken around you. Come when the clouds are on the horizon. 
and in an increasingly complex world he retained the simple philosophy. There is only one medical problem, that is, the sick patient. By the mid-1940s, the Queen's Medical School was the largest in Ireland and the fourth largest in the United Kingdom. We were attracting interesting visitors at that time as well. Sir Alexander Fleming, the discoverer of penicillin, came in 1944 to give several lectures. Since the great man's voice was a bit weak, the organisers put in a request to hire a PA system. £15 would do it, but the university secretary turned them down. The following year, Fleming won the Nobel Prize. I bet they had a PA system that day. One of the talks Sir Alexander gave was to the Medical Students Association. So what sort of students were they? I wonder how many of them were female. It hadn't been easy for women to make progress in the early years. They didn't get into the medical school until the late 1880s, which was about 30 years after the first male students were admitted. The first female student was Miss Jean Bell, admitted to classes in 1889. But by the time the 20th century arrived, women were beginning to make their mark. Among them, Beatrice Helena Lynn, who graduated MB in 1923 and was elected FRCS in 1928. For 32 years until she retired in 1964, she was an eye surgeon at what was then the Ulster Hospital for Children and Women. Down the years, there have been outstanding innovators, both men and women, and it's been my very great privilege to know some of them personally. There's Professor Molly McGeown, who spent her life doing such fantastic work for kidney patients. In 1959, she set up Northern Ireland's first dialysis unit with a machine that was virtually homemade. She would develop what became known as the Belfast Recipe, a protocol to reduce the high level of mortality from infection after transplant. I worked with Molly in my early years as a consultant surgeon. She had tremendous drive and leadership skills, always putting the patient first. She was remarkable in all respects, and I held her in the highest regard. In Molly's day at Queen's, women were still in a minority. Today they account for about 60% of our medical students. And then there's Professor Frank Pantridge inventor of the portable defibrillator, the man who's known worldwide as the father of emergency medicine. Who knows how many lives his genius has saved. As a cardiologist, he was well known to us all as junior doctors, an outstanding war record, a prisoner of war, awarded the military cross, a remarkable innovator who realised that most deaths from heart attack occur from arrhythmias in the first hour, hence his development of the cardiac ambulance and the defibrillator. He had a very gruff exterior, indeed at times he was a very direct physician, but beneath it all he was a caring man who, like Molly, always put the patient first. Another hero for us as young doctors. More recently, I think of my close friend and colleague, the late Professor Paddy Johnson, our former Vice-Chancellor. His great talent and personal drive 
led the modernization of cancer care throughout Northern Ireland and advances in health sciences research here at Queen's. There's a cancer research building named after him also. Sadly, these three are no longer with us, but they've left a wonderful and lasting legacy that we all can share. Dip into the university archives and you will find some fascinating figures. Take Sir William McCormick, a student in 1851 who became a notable surgeon on the battlefields in France, Serbia and South Africa. He became renowned for his work in publications on how to treat gunshot wounds. There have been many of Queen's medical graduates since then who have followed that same path with the same skill and dedication. Many of us spent years in operating theatres dealing with the dreadful consequences of the Troubles. The late Sir Ian Fraser put it this way, Though much has been gained through the advancement of surgery during this time, it has been a too great a price. Nonetheless, surgical techniques developed and honed through those dark days of the Troubles are now in routine practice in other conflicts throughout the world. But what will be required of the doctors and the surgeons of the future, and how are we equipping them? Medicine and our patients have changed totally over the past 175 years. Our older population means more cancers, more patients with multiple conditions, knowledge of diseases, their causes and their treatments is doubling in each five years. Patients and their families have knowledge at their fingertips on their mobile phones. Our course in medicine is changing to meet these needs. Case-based learning, integrated placements, increased family medicine and the availability of a world-class simulation centre opening in a few months. Our doctors will have to be flexible in their careers, resilient and able to deal with uncertainty. But above all else, despite the advent of remote learning and teaching in this COVID world, we at Queen's still hold dear the premise that we've had for almost two centuries that our patients teach us much. We still appreciate the great value of the good role model. Hence we believe strongly in real clinical placements. We use a blended model, modern technology combined with face-to-face teaching and real patient contact. Is it not ironic that when we began our university journey 175 years ago, the great disease killers were pandemics of cholera, smallpox, typhus, yellow fever and the plague? We thought we had conquered infectious diseases, but now in 2020, our 175th anniversary year, we have a pandemic of the new infectious disease, COVID-19, which has changed the world in the past nine months. I have no doubt that our current students will graduate well-trained to face these and other new challenges in the decades to come. I began medicine at Queen's University 50 years ago. I believed then, and still believe now, that it has been a wonderful privilege. 
and as the Lord Moynihan, the doyen of British surgery in the early 20th century, said, he said in 1936, It has all been great fun, and I would willingly do it all again. To listen to more podcasts in the series and find out about our 175th anniversary celebrations, please visit the website www.qub.ac.uk forward slash 175.